Good morning and welcome to South Park Church. I'm Pastor Kyle Thompson. Thank you all for being here, whether you're here in person in our modern sanctuary or joining us downstairs from our traditional sanctuary, watching online, listening to our podcast. We have many ways to worship, but we're all one church serving the one and true God as we continue in our sermon series about the stories of Jesus and how those stories affect our lives as we think about what is our story like with Jesus. So, so glad that you're all here today, and I'm grateful to introduce to you our good friend, Pastor Brian Combs. If you'll join me in giving him a warm welcome. Brian uh, grew up in this church as a little boy back in our old building before we redid our campus, and so went to youth group here, came to all the potluck suppers, uh, Sunday school, all that kind of stuff. Uh, he is a son, he's a father, a husband, and a good friend. And he's also a pastor. He's a man of God. And if you were here in the Advent Christmas season, you probably heard me talk about Haywood Street Congregation, which is the congregation that Brian felt led by God to start in Asheville, North Carolina. It's a sister United Methodist Church. Uh, and it exists for people who are homeless, uh, who are battling addictions to drugs and alcohol. And they get the good news of the, of the gospel. Uh, Brian and his team uh, have worship services. They feed people every day, physical meals. They have a respite for people who get out of the hospital and don't have a place to stay. And they're getting ready to build affordable housing so that a lot of the folks who are homeless will no longer be homeless. And so Brian's been anointed by God. And it all started in this congregation. And we have had an ongoing relationship and partnership and ministry. And because of your generosity to our Christmas offering... Uh, I have a check today I'd like to give to Brian to take to Haywood Street for almost $13,000. And so thank you. Let's celebrate that together today. And Brian is going to be uh, delivering uh, our message today, uh, another great story about Jesus. And so, Brian, thank you and welcome. They say that you can never come home again after you leave. With South Park Church, that's not true. I want to say thank you for the invitation to be here to Kyle. Thank you for your generosity, for the Christmas offering. Thank you for being my Sunday school teachers, for leading me at UMYF. Thank you for ushering me through ordination. And thank you again for welcoming me back home. So glad to be here. This is my first time actually back on this holy ground. Wielding a razor blade, Thomas Jefferson went after his Bible. The third president slashed at will, editing the New Testament line by line until the supernatural, a force beyond scientific understanding, was cut out entirely. The Immaculate Conception, gone. Joseph's Annunciation, gone. Walking on Water, gone. Easter morning, gone. Influenced by the age of enlightenment, the commander-in-chief believed in rationality above all else. But by leaving so many piles left on the cutting room floor, the Jeffersonian Bible sliced itself out of its context. In ancient Palestine, fishmongers on the Galilean docks had little interest in heady explanations. Instead, they were far more interested in reinforcements for the daily scrape of spiritual warfare, for the omnipresent grappling between demonic persecution and divine liberation, for the paranormal conflict pitting old scratch against Jesus the Christ. 
Luke's gospel literally dedicates an entire section to this diabolical struggle. Jesus calms the raging seas. Jesus resuscitates Jairus' daughter. Jesus stems the flow of blood. And Jesus, in the longest dispossession recorded in all of Scripture, exorcises the demon in Gerasene. And yet, after he crosses over into Gentile territory and heals the deranged man, why is it the townspeople shudder with fear? Our question for this morning that we're going to discuss conversationally is why do the townspeople tremble with fear? Our scripture comes from Luke's gospel, and Kyle is going to read it for us. Luke 8, verses 26 through 35. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And as he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for we are many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside where a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. And then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swine herd saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. South Park, this is the word of God for all of us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, whether you came prepared or not, this is the chance for all of us to help preach this sermon. So here's our question again. Why do the townspeople tremble with fear? Any ideas? Because they don't understand. Sure, absolutely. Anytime we stand in the face of something that we can't quite pin down, that we can't quite explain, The first response is fear. Do you know what the most repeated line in all of Scripture is? Do not be afraid. Yeah, in fact, every time there is a movement of God, there is usually a response from an angel or from Jesus or some holy person, a voice from above saying, do not be afraid. It's often been said that the opposite of faith is doubt. I could not disagree more. Doubt is essential for faith. It provokes questions, our curiosity. It always keeps us searching for more. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It's fear. Terror is almost always the force that keeps us away from God. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. But we can't understand it. And here the townspeople are trembling with fear. Yeah, thank you. 
Anybody else? Why did the townspeople tremble with fear? What do we think? Yeah. Yeah, Kyle brings up a great point. What is Jesus going to do? It's important to mention something essential here. Did you notice in the text it says that Jesus crosses over into Gentile territory. Anytime Jesus is going across the Sea of Galilee, that means he's crossing some kind of boundary. He's trespassing a line that someone else set. No, 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 rabbis are not supposed to go here. What's happening in the Gospel of Luke is God's welcome is starting to include all kinds of dramatically new people, women, the uncircumcised, Gentiles. Jesus is crossing over, and by doing so, He's literally destroying all the assumption about where religion is not supposed to go. One way to define whether or not church is being faithful is, are you including the people who don't belong anywhere else? On the other side of the lake were Gentiles. These were folks who simply didn't worship correctly. They did not follow kosher laws, and that is where Jesus is going. For the townspeople... Folks who I am certain made a living always standing on the right side of the line. This is terrifying, even more so when it's a man of God, the son of God, who's doing it. Yeah, thank you, Kyle. Many people assume that a demon is the equivalent of mental illness. That's a debatable point. There's something essential I want you to know about that I learned in my research. About 400 years ago... Back when we treated the mentally ill in such horrific ways, literally would bind people, lock them up in dungeons, especially across Europe, there was a movement to end all of this. And literally within a few years, these severely mentally ill folks that struggled with all kinds of issues were set out on the streets. And there was a little town named Giel, G-E-L. And they raised their hand because they believed a saint had come to visit them and called them to this holy ministry. And here's what they did. They literally raised a flag and sent word out. And they said, whoever you are, whatever asylum you are from, we want you to come to our town. Let's just say I was one of those people. I would show up. I'd knock on Kyle's door. And I'd say, my name is Brian. I'm here. Kyle would say, we've been waiting for you. Come on in. You'll notice there's a place at the dinner table for you. That's where you'll sit. If you go down the hall, the bedroom on the right, that's yours. Here are the keys to the house. Our schedule is the children come home after school. We want you to be their babysitter starting tomorrow. And by the way, the keys of the tractor out in the barn. Would you help us in the fields? There was never any question about what is your diagnosis let's go get your script filled and oh you are scary instead it was you are here we are called to this and you belong it's amazing to me all of these centuries later there are still scientists and psychologists in white coats who go to Giel this day and say what is happening how is it that all of these folks who have been treated by all the best hospitals in the world and barely get better are thriving in Giel. The reason, of course, is because ultimately we all have the same need, and that is to belong somewhere. Giel is such a remarkable, remarkable example of Christian faithfulness. I wonder if one of the reasons why the townspeople 
are terrified is if you read a little bit further in this text, what you'll notice is once the man is sitting at Jesus' feet, that's a posture of gratitude. He gets back up in his right mind and he says to Jesus, I'm coming with you. I will go anywhere you want to go, including to the cross. I beg you, let me be your disciple. And Jesus says, no, I want you to go back to your hometown. You have been quarantined among the tombstones. I want you to go back and join the PTO. I want you to coach Little League. I want you to be back among the very people who set you apart. I think the townspeople were terrified because they started to have to confront this very man who had been previously ostracized. Anybody else? What makes the townspeople tremble with fear? Ah, Bonnie makes a beautiful point. We all have demons. One thing that's very interesting about Christianity is when we come to the table or when we come to the font, the minister is going to invoke the Holy Spirit. We're going to say, trouble the waters and consecrate the bread and the cup. In a sense, what we are doing is, please come spirit and possess all of us. If you live in an enchanted world, the opposite of what Thomas Jefferson lived in, then you believe there are all kinds of spirits constantly vying for our attention. In Christianity, we say the Holy Spirit is the one we are going to breathe in most deeply. I'm convinced the townspeople were terrified because when Jesus heals this man and he comes back into their midst, it forces them to take a look at what demons they have. No question about it, Bonnie. They are terrified because all of a sudden they're going to have to contend with the ways in which they have come up short. I find it very interesting that when you go into an ABC store, you notice it's organized into three sections. Beer, wine, spirits. Isn't that interesting? For the folks that I've gotten to know on the streets of Asheville that struggle mightily with alcoholism, they believe alcohol is a kind of spirit. It literally possesses you. For folks who are using methamphetamine and fentanyl, that's just devastating. Asheville, we did 30 funerals last year alone. Same thing. It's a kind of possession. I think the invitation for all of us to consider is if there are all these spirits about, we have some choice and who we want to take into our body. Who do we want to be possessed by? Thank you, Bonnie. Anybody else? What makes the townspeople tremble with fear? Well, they're worried about their own livestock. They're worried about their own, maybe they're worried about their own livestock. Yeah, biblical scholars believe that that herd of swine that was careened off into the water was worth about $100,000, yes. One thing that's so interesting to me is how somewhere along the way in the church we have said, you can follow Jesus, and yet it will have nothing to do with your finances. When the offering happens, God isn't just asking for your life. God is also asking for your, your monetary gifts. In fact, how we spend our money is a moral document. It's a budget of what we prioritize. And there's no question. The townspeople are terrified. Well, if Jesus came for the herdsmen, swine, maybe he's going to come for our house. Maybe he's going to ask us to give all, all our stuff away from the poor. Maybe he's going to say, you really can't follow me and drive a Cadillac at the same time. There is a way in which Jesus is confronting people 
absolutely with their materialism, and they tremble with fear, and we all still do in one way or another today. Anybody else? Yeah, Dad. Yeah, that's a beautiful point. When the man is reintegrated into society, of course the townspeople are going to wonder, is he going to become psychotic again? And when he does, are we going to do it differently? Are we going to send him back to the tombs? Or are we going to take it upon ourselves like the people in Giel to say, actually, this is a brother. This is part of our family, and it's actually our responsibility to do something about it. Yeah. An overwhelming darkness. His depression shrouded his entire existence. Bouts of uncontrollable crying were followed by suicidal ideations and a plan. The first one involved a noose, the second one flexible tubing and an exhaust pipe. A few hospitalizations later, the diagnosis came back. Bipolar disorder. And yet, the incessant chatter and the irrational spinning, they only escalated. Heeding the voices in his head, Brian Allen Sanderson ripped off his clothes. In 2006, at a Fairfield Inn outside of Spartanburg, police responded to a call about a naked man standing in the hotel elevator. Rather than treating him like a patient, he was arrested. Indecent exposure was the charge and jail was the punishment. Terrified, he resisted the officers, and he landed in solitary confinement. Released and then repeatedly sent back to jail, he was never given a full, proper medical evaluation, and his condition further deteriorated. There were hallucinations about cyanide in the toilet water. There was secret messages from the White House about lurking assassins. There was things smeared on the walls. Still... The voices intensified until finally they said, pluck out your eyes. Gouging one and scraping the pupil off another, he blinded himself. Eventually released back into society and stabilized on medication, Brian now negotiates life with the red tip of a white cane and a disability check. He spends most of his days sitting in a recliner listening to the Bible read over the radio. Rather than handcuffs, what if law enforcement had instead handed him a prescription of lithium? In her book, Insane, Alyssa Roth argues that the brutality of shuttered asylums didn't disappear. Instead, it shape-shifted into the modern detention center. In response, people with mental illness rarely make bail. They receive far harsher sentences. They, comp they make up nearly half of the inmate population, and they disproportionately get the death penalty. And yet, the three largest providers of psychiatric care in our country are not hospitals, they're jails. 
Roth argues that what's insane is not the chemical imbalances of the brain, but rather our country's barbaric response. Despite 2,000 years in between, the demoniac was criminalized too. He was set aside out of sight. He was segregated among the tombstones. He was tormented by a violent oppressor, and he was dehumanized across his tortured life. That is, until Jesus shows up to exorcise the demon of legion. But even more significantly, he also expels the far more sinister band of demons who were occupying the townspeople which kept the man in captivity. Jesus, says Walter Wink, was not a reformer bringing alternative, better readings of the law, nor was he a revolutionary trying to remove one oppressive power and replace it with another. He was beyond revolution. No, no, his struggle was against the structures of oppression, the very domination system itself. The city council of Garrison must have voted to make manic depression illegal. The landlord of the cemetery likely got rich charging the municipality premium rent. The ironworks raised their stock price by smelting more shackles and the private security company procured a lifetime contract guarding the prisoner. And then Jesus arrives to overthrow it all. In response, I believe the townspeople trembled most because he came to threaten their monetized tyranny, an economy that was wickedly dependent on someone else's suffering was now teetering upon collapse. All this talk about spiritual warfare is uncouth for the rationally religious. But if we minimize evil and we try to think it out of existence, then its territory only increases. If you sit with the incarcerated, they will tell you the malevolent forces vying for yet another principality to inhabit could not be more real. Thankfully, Jesus was so much more than a moral exemplar. After he performed more exorcisms than he did miracles, he unleashed the Holy Ghost, the most potent spirit of all, on all of us. Empowered, let us go from this place to let the captives go free. South Park, the Mecklenburg County Detention Center, is 5.7 miles due north. Let us go.